0: um hey welcome everybody uh great to see everyone this is the the last equip class that we're going to have for a while uh in the fall and i think uh we're going to try to start it back up in the spring sometime and that may be another uh, person leading that uh, but i've been, i've really enjoyed the time and so i'm just grateful that you guys have um have been coming and it's been a lot of fun uh let me pray for us and then we're going to jump in god thanks so much for uh, your Word, and uh, thank you for uh, the community of faith that we have here at Providence Road, and this broader community of believers. Uh, Lord, the subject matter today is not. Um, oh gosh, it's it's tough to it's tough to talk about areas that that. Uh, oh, Christianity is, has has uh, not um, uh, has occasionally not kept true to. Uh, your ideals of uh, of a loving community. Uh, We haven't seen or treated people uh, as Jesus would want us to treat them. Um, And in in some ways, uh, even in in the name of Christianity, have have committed uh, atrocities. And uh, and so, Lord, this is certainly a part of that history, and it's something we want to learn from and not shy away from or sweep under the rug. And so I pray that we could talk about it and, and learn about it in ways that we could maybe have some introspection as a community uh, and see the ways that our culture influences us uh, in ways that may be antithetical to the gospel. Uh, so we lift that up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, uh, this is where I get to, uh, I think, talk about a little bit more about why, why I do what I do as a sociologist. So I, I am a sociologist by training and uh, and I love what I do, and one of the reasons, I, and I'm a sociologist of religion, so what I study is American religion. One of the things that drew me to the sociology of religion, one of the things that fascinates me about it, is uh, I, am, I am fascinated by this, uh, how culture, if I, could, if I could boil it down into a, a couple of sentences, I'm, I'm fascinated with how culture, surrounding culture, uh, influences our uh, Christian faith, uh, and, and, and for better or for worse. Uh, in some ways that uh, it it augments uh, certain things about our faith that are different from the way other people in other contexts express and experience Christianity. So we are, in some ways, uh, unable to separate from our Americanness. Um, We have certain values. All of us are born into a cultural context. And, And in many ways, that shapes the way we experience Christianity, the way we understand it, the way we interpret it some of the ways uh, we are unable to disengage from. For, for example, I, I read Greek, but I don't think in Greek. I can't, I, can't, I can't think through that language. And so I think through English. And so I am bound by that culture in, in that sense. I, I think in English. And so the terms that I use uh, to think about my own faith uh, are through an English Bible or th- through uh, the language that I have up here. So I have that kind of structure that binds How I experience the Christian faith through English. Um, To give you a a metaphor, my uh, I I have uh, just recently, within the past few months, gotten glasses, and it just became something that I had to do. So for 38 years of my life, I haven't had glasses, Um, and so like I just kind of whatever I was looking at, uh, I, I just kind of you know as as the years went on and as I read and read and read and damaged more of my eyes and didn't get glasses. Uh, I figured this is just everything looked fuzzy until I actually had an eye exam and like, oh, I, that actually helps and I can, I can see better. Um, and so I see better with my glasses on when I put them on. Um, but I, because I, for 38 years, I haven't had glasses, I still, it, I still see my glasses all the time. You know what I mean? Like I, I always notice that I have glasses on. Like I'm walking around and I'm kind of like adjusting them or I'm looking through them. And I see rims. And they're conspicuous, and they're kind of in my vision. Uh, whereas somebody who has been wearing glasses uh, for years and years and years has probably come to the point where they've just forgotten that they have glasses on, right? Like they just don't really see them. I mean, if you if they had to focus, they would be able they would be aware that they have glasses on, and yet they see through the glasses and they don't see the glasses anymore. Uh, culture is like that. Like uh, we have these lenses that are artificial that aren't necessarily how we have to see things, but we have these lenses that our culture puts on us. And we see through those lenses. And we have been in that culture so long. Imagine a baby who has uh, has has only had glasses strapped to his or her face uh, it, their whole life, right? Like, And they see through those lenses and they don't know anything else until you take off the glasses. And so sociology as a discipline is something that I think is fun because it allows me to to try to step outside, to take off those lenses, uh, to say, how is it that my culture has shaped how I understand uh, my Christian values and my Christian faith? How has my culture shaped the way I see Jesus and, and the way I, I think he, he wants me to live? Um, one of the lenses, I, as I've already indicated, is language. So we, we think through the language that our culture gives us. Um, another one would be uh, values that are Pervasive within our culture. If I asked you what are the kind of core American values that I think are just kind of like American as baseball and apple pie, uh, you would you would probably say things like uh, a value of freedom, a value of liberty, um, a value of uh, probably individualism, right? Like individual autonomy. Nobody can tell you what to do. Democracy. Everybody gets a voice. Everybody has a, an opportunity. Other things like. Uh, we love underdog stories, and we love bootstrap stories, like people who start with nothing, and they work hard, and apply their creativity, and they build their way up to the top. That is a very American kind of story that we love, uh, and almost an unassailable good, something that we just seem as like, well, why would you question that? Those things are awesome. know, Who would find a problem with those, those kinds of things? We see through our cultural lenses that way. Another lens through which culture uh, filters our experience of Christianity is through the, through the privileges that we enjoy. Uh, our privilege, uh, that's really a hot button word. It sounds kind of PC to talk about things like privilege, but our, our privilege, our advantages and the things that we would like to keep, uh, colors our perception of, and, and you could say it's selfishness, you could say it's our own sin nature, but our privilege as a group oftentimes ends up coloring the way that we think God wants us to live, the thing that God wants us to do in our interpretations of scripture and this is what we're gonna be talking about today, how, how culture has, uh, ha, has, has filtered Christianity uh, in such a way history, historically in the United States as to where we, we have a, a really uh, unfortunate and checkered past with issues of things like race, uh, racial inequality, racial injustice. Um, a guy named H. Richard Niebuhr, wrote this fantastic book that I would recommend. I mean, he wrote it in the 1920s and 30s, I think around 29 is when he wrote it. And, uh, but if you read it today, you would, you would think he was writing this week. I mean, it was just so prescient in the way that he, he wrote. It's called The Social Sources of Denominationalism. And what he is arguing, H. Richard Niebuhr was a, a, a theologian, an ethicist, uh, and, uh, and what he was arguing in this book is that where do we have all of these denominations? America is just like rife with denominations. And we, we seem to, one pops up every week, it seems. Uh, why is that the case? Well, oftentimes we, he argues that the denominations that we have, people splitting and breaking off and doing their own thing, have social sources. That is, they, they, they stem not from our theological disagreements as much as they stem from us wanting to hang out with people like us, uh, from our class background, our ethnic background, our national, our political ideologies and our uh, racial preferences. And he's writing again in the 1920s. But uh, he's, he's arguing that really all of the splits that we see within Protestantism have their roots in uh, social issues. Uh, take, for example, the very, very church that we are in right now uh, is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. Why Southern Baptist? Where does that come from? Why are we Southern and, and not just Baptist? Well, there's a history there. We are Southern Baptist because... Uh, uh, right before the uh, Civil War, uh, Northern Baptists said like, hey, we think you you Baptists in the South ought to get rid of your slaves. It's not something godly. It's not something that Christians should do. And the Southern Baptists said, mm, bye-bye. You know, like they said, they said, thank you very much. We'll have our own thing. And we actually have Southern Methodists and Southern Presbyterians. Now, those groups have since reunited, and so we have, like, the United Methodists. Uh, but we are still Southern Baptists, right? And that is a legacy of a social schism, right? Like a, a separation that had its roots in racism, in slavery. So H. Richard Niebuhr writes in his book, in the intro to his book, He says, Christendom has often achieved apparent success by ignoring the precepts of its founder. The church, as an organization interested in self-preservation and in the gain of power, has sometimes found the council of the cross quite as inexpedient, that is uh, uh, disadvantageous, not, not helpful, quite as inexpedient as have national and economic groups in dealing with such major social issues or evils as war, slavery, and social inequality, it has discovered convenient ambiguities in the letter, letter of the gospel, which enabled it to violate their spirit and to ally itself with uh, prestige and power those evils had gained in their corporate organization. In adapting itself to the conditions of a civilization, which its founder had bidden it to permeate. And okay, so it, it, Christianity has adapted itself to the conditions of a civilization, which its founder, Jesus, had, had bidden it to permeate, to, to go into the world and to, to take the gospel. With the spirit of divine love, it, it found that it was easier to give to Caesar the things belonging to Caesar if the examination of what might belong to God were not too closely pressed. So what uh, H. Richard Niebuhr is arguing is that Christians in the past, and, and he's talking about in the American context primarily, have often found it convenient to ignore uh, the teachings of Jesus when it is worked to the advantages of our group. And not just our group as Christians, but our group as, uh, say, white, middle class, uh, uh, eth- you know, uh, from a certain ethnic background, Christians, right? All of those things together. Uh, this is when Christianity just becomes a part of who we are as a culture, not like what we're believing, but it's more of a social identity. And so um, we have this really unfortunate history uh, with, uh, with race. Uh, it is something that is uh, gone all the way up from the time of slavery up to the present day. And we're going to provide a little, I'm going to provide a little bit of a survey of how that's looked uh, in ways that we have capitulated to the culture and Christians have really embraced the evils of, of what was going on at the time to our own advantage in ways that Christians have pushed back against that in ways that Christians could still do that. And I hope, and I hope do. Um, so what we see is we actually see this happening in several movements. So early on, uh, during the period of slavery. Slavery s- starts around the early 1600s. Uh, I think 1609 is the first uh, instance that we, we have of, of race slavery, like we, like we experience, now the first African slave. Uh, and then it can carries on until uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, 1861. So we've got slavery going up through that, through that time. Early on, Christians, uh, Christian owners, uh, and uh, predominantly were Christians who were owning slaves, we were not very keen on Christianizing their slaves. They didn't want to share the gospel with them. They didn't want them to become Christians. And there were a couple of reasons for that. Now, H. Richard Niebuhr, in his book, uh, he, he, he demonstrates or he uh, provides an, an indication of why Christians didn't want to share the gospel with their slaves initially. And we get that from a letter in 1727 uh, uh, that is a bishop of London who is writing to slave owners. So he, in this letter, this bishop of London is addressing objections. So apparently he has been telling uh, his slave, the slave owners that are in his parish, hey, you guys ought to Christianize, you guys ought to share the gospel with your slaves. And they're saying, no, we don't want to. And here's why. And so he's answering their objections. So one objection is the time to be allowed for instructing them would be an abatement of the profit of their labor. In other words, like if I've got to spend all this time sharing the gospel with them, discipling them, it's taking time away from the time that they could be working in the field making me money. Uh, Another reason is that uh, making them Christians only makes them less diligent and more ungovernable. They start to think, well, I have rights too, right? Like, why why do I have to? We're both Christians, right? Uh, Why are you abusing me in this way? Why are you taking, you know, why why can't I just be treated like a peer? Uh, And lastly, uh, baptizing them automatically destroys the owner's property rights on them. Um, H. Richard Niebuhr, I mean, it's kind of the idea of of uh, once they're Christians, don't you have to treat them like they're brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean you can't abuse them that way. Nibir goes on, he says, in the early period special weight was attached, excuse me, special weight was attached to this last objection. Baptizing slaves makes them equal. For it had been an unwritten law of Christendom that Christians might not hold fellow believers as slaves. The slavery of the Negro had been defended, therefore, on the ground that he was a heathen, that is not human, he is a savage. Uh, the, slavery of the, uh, the slavery of the Negro, okay, yeah. So the, uh, the, the slaveholder had felt the inconsistency of admitting uh, an equality in religious relations which he, he was not willing to admit in civil life. And he had resented the efforts of missionaries to convert his servants uh, as an attack, excuse me, not attached, not as, as an attack on his property rights. Uh, so initially, Christians balked at this. They wanted to push against, they didn't want to Christianize their slaves because of selfish reasons. They, you know, they, they felt like, well, I don't, want to, I don't want to treat them like peers. I don't want to treat them like equals. Um, but they ended up capitulating on this, and they ended up compromising for the sake of evangelism. Um, my Fight Club and I have been reading through a biography by a guy named Thomas Kidd, who's a, an evangelical historian. He's written a biography on George Whitfield, And it's a great, it's really fascinating, actually. Like, it's, uh, whenever you read biographies of people who lived around this time, uh, you're just shocked at the things that they did, believed, uh, held. So, for example... Uh, just this is as an aside. John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. Uh, actually, started Methodism before he was a Christian. Uh, he he was he started Methodism like when he was in college. He was a part of this group of like the the Holy Club that that was called. He was at Oxford, and he started this group, and uh, which which ultimately became the Methodists. And it wasn't until like a decade later that he actually experienced conversion by his own account. Like he didn't he started that and he wasn't even a Christian, and he also and apparently Christians were doing this at the time. Um, we always kind of joke of like, you know, you see in the book of Acts or elsewhere that they're casting lots. Basically like rolling the dice and figuring out like, what should I do? You know, like, like, a, like a magic eight ball. Like we think of Christians doing that and it seems kind of silly. They were doing that all the time back then. Like John Wesley, like whenever he was like trying to discern God's will, he would, he would cast lots. He would like do the magic eight ball thing and figure it out. Or he would do what's called bibliomancy, which is like he would open up, maybe you've done this before, like open up a Bible to a random page and be like, you know, what? what does God want me to do? You know, like, and, and just pick a verse and be like, whatever verse God led me to there, that I would just do that, or like I would discern some kind of meaning. Anyway, so uh, the, the Whitfield biography has a lot about Wesley because there was this, they were good friends and there was this big fight. But one of the unfortunate things about George Whitfield, who was uh, one of the leading preachers of the Great Awakening, uh, is that George Whitfield himself is personally responsible for the introduction of slavery into Georgia. Uh, he developed this idea. He wanted to, to uh, a lot, large part of his ministry, he had a, a heart for, uh, for, for orphans and for uh, ministry to benighted children. And so what he wanted to do is he wanted to go to Georgia, and he was raising money all the time to, to found this thing that he called the Bethesda Orphanage. Now, how is that going to be sustained economically? Well, George Whitfield, George Whitfield's mind, he said, well, we already have slavery, so all we need to do is just, like, we'll have a bunch of slaves and we'll have slaves do the work. And we'll Christianize the slaves. We'll, like, we'll evangelize the slaves. We'll disciple them. We'll make sure that they're, they're educated enough to learn uh, the, the tools of, of, of how to grow as a Christian. But the whole orphanage was to be built upon slave labor. Um, and so George Whitefield uh, died, never, never, never thinking twice about this. Thought slavery was totally fine. Uh, never repented of that. Owned slaves himself. Um, Uh, Another biography that I read within the past year by a guy named George Marsden uh, is on a guy named Jonathan Edwards. So Jonathan Edwards is, uh, again, another leading figure in the Great Awakening. And Jonathan Edwards also owned slaves. His family owned slaves. Everybody he knew owned slaves. He was a, a, a Northampton elite. And all of those people had at least one or two or three slaves around the house, sometimes women, sometimes men. And so Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. Now this right here, this chicken scratch that you see, this is a, I'm not expecting you to read that or anything like that. So uh, this is actually a letter. Um, I was, this, this, today in preparing for this, uh, I, I was reading over this letter uh, that has been like, not this, but like, that has been like transcribed into legible uh, writing to the best somebody could. But this is a letter that was discovered in the mid-90s of Jonathan Edwards. And I don't know where they found it in kind of scraps of like his old papers, but like, I mean, he's writing this in 1740. They found it in the 1990s. Uh, And what it is, is it's basically an an argument in favor of slavery. So what was going on in Northampton at the time, now scholars debate whether or not he's talking about himself here or he's talking about another pastor friend. But apparently this church, and there was always kind of like turmoil, like people in his church didn't like him and they were trying to throw him out and eventually they did. Uh, But uh, there was all this turmoil in somebody's church, like somebody else he's talking about. And, uh, and the people in the, in the church said, well, our pastor shouldn't own slaves. They, they, they thought it was wrong. Like, you guys shouldn't own slaves. This is evil. Like, Christians shouldn't do that. And Jonathan Edwards is basically like, this is a, it's, it's a draft of a letter. It's not a completed letter. So you're basically getting his, like, fragmentary thoughts on, on this. But you can discern in the letter he is, he is arguing for slavery. He's arguing why it's not a bad thing. What he does is he basically starts off by uh, criticizing the church for criticizing him or this pastor uh, who owns slaves, uh, saying that they're being hypocritical. Like you guys may not own slaves, but you benefit from the work that slaves provide. So you're indirectly owning slaves. It's actually kind of like uh, like knowing Jonathan Edwards, having read biographies about him, having, having seen how sincerely he, he wanted to like obey the Lord and he wanted to subjugate every part of his life to Christ. I mean this guy didn't have like little parts of his life that were like unbowed uh, to, to Jesus um, and yet this kind of like blanket kind of thing where he's like arguing for slavery saying like he didn't think the slave trade was good because he thought that was really evil to, like go into people's tribes in Africa and like rip people out and kidnap them and take them over so he thought like there shouldn't be any more slave trade but if people are, like, born to your slaves in your home, then why not? You know, like, you, could, oh, you, can, you can share the gospel with them, you can own them, uh, and you, they, they, you can put them to work. And so he saw no moral problem with that. And I, I have actually wrestled with this one theologically, like this, uh, this idea that George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. So, you know, are they, are they Christians, right? Like, most, most of you are probably, if you know Jonathan Edwards, if you know George Whitfield, most of you would have no problem saying, well, yeah, I mean, of course, they're Christians, right? Like, they're like, they're you know, every part of these guys' lives was uh, was about Jesus, other than this one glaring problem. Um, but then there therein lies a, a theological conundrum, right? Like, uh, so, 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 if I were to, if I were to, let me let me pose an alternative scenario here. Um, because it goes down to more than slavery. So think about this theologically. Like, can a Christian? live in in sin their entire lives um and because they're maybe convinced that it's not sin like they don't think it's sin it's not wrong they don't see any kind of commandment in scripture to contradict that that sin and and yet it's sin like we we would say it's sin so like even though the cultural culture says it's not wrong it's sin the holy spirit hates it god hates it um, can a Christian live in that sin, even, even defending it like Edwards does, even like defending that sin, his whole life or her whole life, never repent of it and that not be a thing. Like the Holy Spirit never convicts them. Um, think, let, me, let, me, let me think of an, uh, another one that a lot of, uh, a, a lot of people would, would like let's, let's, let's say it's not slavery. Let's say it's homosexuality. So um, would... Uh, if we were having a conversation and somebody says to you, hey, I'm a Christian and I'm, I'm gay and, uh, and I don't have, I don't think there's any theological problem with it at all. And nothing I see in the scriptures convinces me otherwise and, uh, and I'm just going to continue doing this uh, forever because I don't, you know, until till, till the day that I die, believing like, hey, Jesus loves me, he's forgiven me of any kind of sin and I don't see any reason the scripture says I shouldn't do this. And they really are convinced. I don't mean they're being evasive. I don't mean they're being willfully disobedient. I mean, they really are convinced. That They're sincere, like, and, and even the culture says, like, say 100 years from now, when nobody even bats an eyelash at, at people uh, being gay or lesbian, right? Like, in a culture where it's completely fine, and they say it's fine, but if we feel like, hey, that's, no, like, biblically, like, we don't agree with that. So do you see the parallel I'm arguing here? Like, you might be tempted to say, like, well, is that person really a Christian who is just kind of, like, living in, living in sin, despite what the culture says, despite what they're convinced of? Um, you might be tempted to say, well, like, I don't think they are a Christian. How could they be a Christian and, and Jesus not convict them of that sin? Or they not see it clearly uh, in the scriptures. Um, and this is, has been a, a, an example. Like Jonathan Edwards uh, dies with owning slaves, never releases them, uh, never repents of it, never thinks twice and defends it, defends the institution. And so does Whitfield. Uh, their whole life. I mean, uh, to, 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 to put this in perspective, like how blinded, I guess is my point, right? Like how, how blinded, Uh, Christians can be about these kinds of things like um, to own slaves to own slaves like to own other human beings like it has to be by at least the threat of violence like otherwise they would leave would would they not like if they don't think I'm going to get chased down and beaten or killed for doing this. They would up and say, hey, this is really hard. I don't want to work out here. I want to do my own thing, and I want to leave. Like, despite any kind of, like, stories that we tell ourselves about, like, well, I bet the Christian masters were really nice, Uh, and I, I bet they were really good to their slaves. That's garbage, right? Like, you have to, like, to own slaves, you have to do it by the threat of violence. Like, they have to feel like I'm going to be hurt or harmed if I run away. And so Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, like all of these resolutions, like father of the great awakening, uh, uh, so submitted to Jesus in every area of his life, uh, could have written his book, you know, chapter one of religious affections uh, and wrapped up that chapter and, and, uh, and then gone out and whipped his female slave and then come back in and said, chapter two, right? And, and, not, and not batted an eyelash at that kind of thing. That's, that's baffling to me. Like that's a theological thing that I wrestle with, like that the Holy Spirit never convicted these people uh, who are so sincerely trying to pursue the Lord um, because they're so blinded. I mean, all of us would say like owning human beings is sin. Like any time period, it's bad. Uh, And yet they seem to be kind of not only hunky-dory with it, but defending it. Um, Nabier goes on talking about this letter from the bishop in London. Uh, he quotes, this is, this is quoting uh, nabier he says, Christianity and embracing, or this is, he quotes the bishop, excuse me, Christianity and the embracing of the gospel, so he's countering these objections, like, hey, you don't want to, you don't want to evangelize your slaves because you think it's going to uh, make them, uh, give them a human dignity that you don't want to give them. Uh, Christianity and embracing the gospel does not in the least alteration in civil property, or does not make the least alteration in civil property, or in any of the duties which belong to civil relations. But in all of these respects, it continues persons just in the same state as it found them. The freedom which Christianity gives is a freedom from the bondage of sin and Satan and from the dominion of men's lusts and passions and inordinate desires. But as to their outward condition, whatever that was before, whether bond or free, their being baptized and becoming Christians, makes no manner of change in it. Do you see the the, situation? Do you see how that is switched now? Like, whereas before they felt like, hey, if I, if I share the gospel with them, it gives them a dignity, it makes them people, and I, I can't own other, other Christians. And now they just kind of reasoned it away. They just said, you know, Christianity changes your spiritual state. It makes it so that you're set free from sin and the bondage to Satan. Uh, but it doesn't change anything about your earthly estate, it doesn't change anything about the way that I treat you uh, here. Uh, he goes on, and this is a, a letter from the London bishop and then a letter from a Methodist missionary. This is the the bishop. He says, the gospel everyone enjoins not only diligence and fidelity, but also obedience for conscience sake. Christianity takes not out of the hands. get this. Christianity takes not out of the hands of superiors any degrees of strictness or severity, but fairly appear to be uh, that fairly appear to be necessary for the pre- preservation and subjection and government. So he's saying you can be as brutal as you want to be. right? Like that isn't like being a Christian, you're being a Christian, there being a Christian doesn't take any kind of Uh, any kind of like strictness or severity out of your hand, Uh, whatever you got to do to make them subjected, make them to to, to keep them in in line, you can be as brutal as you want to be. The letter from the Methodist missionary, the missionary says, it was missionary influence that moderated slaves' passions and kept them in steady course of duty and prevented them from sinning against God by offending against the law's of man. So uh, Christianity, whereas it was previously something that they didn't want to give to slaves because it made, meant, meant you had to treat them as equals, becomes not only something that they're okay with, they, they started to see it as like, a, well, this is a way that kind of makes them better slaves, like this makes them more docile. Uh, one, it means, you know, like uh, it doesn't change the way I treat them, but it also makes them like nicer, more moral, more easily like commandable. Uh, there is a, a social theorist named Antonio Gramsci. Uh, all of the stuff that we know from him or that he wrote, he wrote in prison. Uh, he was imprisoned as a Marxist, and so he was a, he was a Marxist. Uh, and basically, like Marx had these visions of like what, what he thought was going to be a communist revolution and utopia that never happened. And so Gramsci's in prison uh, for espousing these views. He's in Italy, and, and he's in prison, and he's kind of reasoning. He's thinking to himself, like, why didn't, why didn't the, the communist revolution take over? And what he concludes... Uh, is this theory of what we call cultural hegemony? And that is the idea that the way, uh, uh, basically, he's arguing like Gramsci would say, uh, dominating people is really hard, especially if you're trying to do it by force. Uh, it's inconvenient. Like, you're always having to point guns to people's heads or, like, threaten to kill them or that kind of thing. It's so much more convenient if you can, if you can dominate a people uh, by their own consent, uh, by getting them to buy into your values, by getting them to share your vision of, like, well, yes. Uh, of course, I should be. I should, I should be subjected to this. This is just the way God wants it. Um, this is, and so Christianity became used as that kind of way to convince slaves, people of African descent, that no, this is how God wants it. This is. This is uh, biblical, right? Like you're a Christian, and, and God would want you to be subjected to your master in this way. I'm going to give you some examples. Now, Christian, like slaves were taught this. They were. They were intentionally taught. God wants you to be a slave. This is good. You should stay in your station. Uh, this is from a, a baptismal vow uh, for African slaves. This is taken from a book uh, called Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. And so uh, slaves, before they were baptized, oftentimes, like, when we do baptisms, like, somebody shares their testimony, we ask them, like, do you, do you believe in the name of the, you know, do you believe that you've been saved uh, by Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have kind of a, a ritual that we go in through. It's not a meaningless ritual, but it's something that we, we talk people through to affirm. And this is what they talk through with slaves. You declare in the presence of God and before this congregation that you do not ask for the holy baptism out of any design to free yourself from the duty and obedience you owe your master while you live, but merely for the good of your soul and to partake of the graces and blessings and promises promised to the members of the church of Jesus Christ. So lest you thought baptizing uh, you would 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 uh, remove or somehow change your situation. You just want to make sure you're going to be you know uh, spiritually saved, but you're just going to be a slave, right? You're going to be a slave forever. Uh, this is taken from a catechism. Now you guys know what a catechism is. A catechism is a a a, a list of. Uh, responses and memorized questions and responses and answers that we do with children, like we, how we teach children, like these are the essential truths of the Christian faith. And so slaves were given a catechism specially designed uh, for them in their own situation. So this is a catechism for American slaves. What did God make for you? The slaves answer, to make a crop. Uh, another question, what is the meaning of thou shalt not commit adultery? Now, this is, like, wouldn't you think, like, adultery like, it should be like, well, I'm not supposed to sleep with somebody who is not my spouse. Uh, that seems to be the, the, pretty, the pretty obvious answer. But slaves weren't allowed to marry. Uh, slaves were not allowed to, like, have families. They were separated from their families, and they were breeded like livestock. Uh, and so what do, you, what do you tell a person in that situation about what adultery means for them? Well, their catechism answer was to serve our heavenly father and our earthly master and obey our overseer and not steal anything. Uh, so again, this is what you had to construct an entirely different kind of vision of Christianity in light of what the slave situation was. And Christians had all kinds of justification for this from the Bible. Here are some that, uh, uh, that are taken from Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. Uh, reasons that uh, Christians would give for owning slaves and for operating this way. Abraham and the patriarchs held slaves without God's disapproval. Canaan, Ham's son, was made to be a slave to his brothers. Uh, I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Ham's son, what's the connection between Canaan and Ham and slavery? Ten Commandments, Jesus never spoke against slavery. Paul and Peter commanded slaves to obey their masters, which is is true. Um, Paul returned a runaway slave, Philemon, to his master, which is a bit of a misnomer because, like, Paul actually tells Philemon to treat Onesimus like a brother, and so I think that is probably a... yeah, I think they were misinterpreting that, obviously. And, so, uh, and then uh, questions about, like, paralleling, like, well, women, if they have roles in the church that are like, you know, hey, sub- be subject to your husbands, why couldn't slaves be subject to their masters? What about this curse of Ham thing? So this is actually taken from Genesis. So there is this passage where, and I, I won't read the whole thing just because we, we don't have the time, but there's this passage where Noah is naked, uh, and he gets drunk. Like, after he comes out of the art, he gets drunk, and he's naked, and he's, like, in his tent, and, uh, and Ham goes in, and he looks at his father's nakedness. And his brothers, Shem and Japheth, go in backwards. They cover themselves up so they don't see their father's nakedness, and they cover him up. And when Noah comes to and gets over his hangover, he says, Cursed is Canaan, the son of, the son of Ham. And what he concludes at the bottom is that cursed be Canaan, servants of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan will be his servant. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, uh, a very literalist interpretation of this, was, and historically people thought this is the way people went out, right? Like you've got different tribes. You've got the descendants of Japheth, who are the Europeans, and the... Uh, Shemites, right? Like, have you ever heard that term, the anti-Semitic, like, or Semitic, like, that, that, the Shemites, the descendants of Shem, and then you've got Ham over here, and so what we just saw was a, a people making that parallel, like, well, Ham, the descendants of Ham, the Canaanites are over here, and the, uh, the, the Canaanites are supposed to serve the, the descendants of Japheth, and so we should, we biblically should be able to own, uh, own slaves or own the descendants, and that's what they thought were Africans. Continuing on, Christianity continued to be used as this form of of social control. Um, These are uh, slave balconies. Uh, So in a church, like uh, fascinating enough, the early early churches like around this time, even the antebellum days, uh, they were integrated. Like oftentimes we think of church as a very segregated thing now, uh, and it is. It still very much is. But during this time it was integrated, but not because people wanted to be around uh, people of a different race or they were open to that kind of thing. The slaves sat out here, sat up here. You would come in the door over here if you were white and you would sit at the bottom and the slaves would sit in the back so you didn't have to see them or you didn't have to smell them, you didn't have to be around them. And what they would do is they would use this as a way to one, uh, keep tabs on what slaves were doing. Uh, You weren't allowed to meet as a slave like with groups of five or more. And a lot of said that was allowed because they wanted to put down insurrections. They wanted to make sure you couldn't uh, do that kind of thing. Uh, And so it provided another way for reinforcement. You actually could preach uh, to the slaves, things like Philemon, things like uh, slaves obey your masters, and that kind of thing. Um, I want to I want to give you guys some excerpts from the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. This is a this is an amazing book. If you if you ever get a chance to read it, it's a short book. Uh, it's it's powerfully uh, written. Um, I, I just get goosebumps at some of the passages, and it's like I I was joking with some folks. Like I was I was reading this, it's like I. You know, I can't underline everything. I had to remind myself. Like, it was just like, it's, it doesn't, it loses its meaning if you're underlying literally everything. And so I had to behave myself. But he, he, he writes about, he's writing in the early, before, before you know, as, before the, the Civil War. And he's writing about himself as a slave. Frederick Douglass was a slave who became free. And, and you know, very well educated, was a statesman, was a leader. Uh, and he writes about the Christian, like, he writes a lot uh, about Christians in the South. Um, and, he, and, and I just want you to listen to this, some, some of the stuff that he says about the Christians as he was experiencing white Christians in the South. He says, in August 1832, my master, his master, uh, his, Mr. Covey is his name, my master attended a Methodist camp meeting. This is actually during the Second Great Awakening, a Methodist camp meeting. They had these kind of evangelistic things. He attended a Methodist camp meeting held in the, in the, uh, in the Bayside Talbot County and there experienced religion. I indulged a faint hope that his conversion would lead to him emancipating his slaves, and that if he did not do this, it would at any rate make him more kind and humane. I was disappointed on both of these respects. It, w- it neither made him to, uh, to be humane to his slaves nor to emancipate them. If it had any effect on his character, it made him more cruel and hateful in all his ways. For I believe him to have been much, more, uh, much worse than after his conversion than before." Prior to his conversion, he relied upon his own depravity to shield and sustain him in his savage barbarity. But after his conversion, he found religious sanction and support for his slaveholding cruelty. He made the greatest pretensions to piety. His house was a house of prayer. He prayed morning, noon, and night. He very soon distinguished himself among his brethren and was soon made a, a, a class leader and exhorter. His activity in revivals was great, and he proved himself as an instrument in the hands of the church in converting many souls. Uh, and yet, he he became more brutal after he became a Christian. Uh, Frederick Douglass goes on. He uh, he uh he actually was uh, later on. He he, co- he goes to a different master, like he, he leaves Mr. Covey and goes to a, a different uh, master. And he he uh and he's thankful that he's not a Christian. Like this, that this master, thank goodness, he's not a Christian. He says, another advantage I gained in my new master was he made no pretensions to or profession of religion. And this, in my opinion, was a truly great advantage. I assert most unhesitatingly that the religion of the South is, more, is, is, is a mere covering for the most horrid crimes, a justifier of the most appalling barbarity, a sanctifier of the most hateful frauds, and a dark shelter under which the darkest, foulest, grossest, and most infernal deeds of slaveholding Of slaveholders find the strongest protection. Were I to listen to this, were I to be again reduced to the chains of slavery, next to that enslavement, I would regard being the slave of a religious master to be the greatest calamity that could befall me. For of all slaveholders with whom I ever met, religious slaveholders are the worst. I have ever found them to be the meanest and the basest, the most cruel and cowardly of all others. It was my unhappy lot not only to belong to, such, to a religious slaveholder, but to live in a community of such religionists. Um, he, he concludes, and I love how he does this, in his appendix. He actually has like a special appendix that he adds towards the end of his book. And he adds this because he feels like, you know what, I've bashed these religious slaveholders so much that I think people may misread me and think I'm not a Christian. Like they may think I have something against Jesus and Christianity. And so he writes I find since reading over the foregoing narrative, that I have, in several instances, spoken in such a tone and manner, respecting religion, as may possibly lead those acquainted with my religious views to suppose uh, one an opponent of all religion. So in other word, like people may think I'm against religion. To remove the liability of such misapprehension, I deem it proper to append the following brief explanation. What I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land, and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the, plund- the, the corrupt, slaveholding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity at all. I look upon it as the climax of all all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. He goes on and on and on with such powerful and descriptive language. Um, um, And it is. It's just amazing that uh, what he describes, but I love how he separates the two. Like, I love how Frederick Douglass says, look, there is Christianity proper that I believe represents what Jesus wants. And then there is the Christianity of this land, this entire South, that is is a lie, is a blanket covering for the culture that says slavery is okay and we should do this and it's no problem and Jesus is fine with it, right? And I love how he identifies that. But he didn't buy this. He didn't buy that, like, Jesus wants me to be a slave. He didn't buy that, like, I should obey and and submit. But he does say in his other narrative, The Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, he wrote two autobiographies. In the other one he says, I have met a good many religious colored people who were under the delusion that God required them to submit to slavery and to wear their chains, chains with meekness and humility. I could entertain no such nonsense as this. And so he didn't buy it for a second, but he did admit that there are a lot of slaves who, who really did, that really bought this. And so for them, it was, for the slave owners of those slaves, it was an effective method of social control. Now, what about, like so far I've given a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of bad, right? Like a lot of uh, really unfortunate uh, facts, but uh, are really unfortunate facts about christianity 's relationship to slavery. What about Christian abolitionists? Uh, they existed. Um, there were some. Um, oftentimes people bring up William Wilberforce as kind of like the, con- the, the you know the contrast to this, but Wilberforce was british sorry not, not, not american you don 't get to claim Wilberforce, but there were some. Uh, one was George Fox, the founder of the Quakers now Quakers uh, 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 what we also call the Society of the Friends, believed in equality, and they began denouncing slavery as early as the 1680s. So uh, there were lots of Christians. So I just want to uh, bring Circle back to this. There were lots of Christians, and even Edwards had to deal with some, that said Christi- that slavery is not right. right? So like, the, the whole kind of like, hey, they didn't know it was wrong. Uh, nobody was speaking against slavery. Everybody owned slaves, and nobody questioned it. Edwards had to deal with the people who said you shouldn't own slaves and he argued against them, and the Quakers were arguing for this long time before Edwards came around. So uh, there was definitely debates among Christians about whether or not this was good, but George Fox says, and this is, he's writing in King James, um, he says, now I say, if this should be the condition of you and yours, slavery, uh, you would think it a hard measure, yea, and very great bondage and cruelty, and therefore consider seriously of this, and do you for and to them as you would willingly have them or any other do unto you, were you in the, like lo- in, in the like slavish condition. He applies the golden rule. You can't hold slaves because you wouldn't want to be a slave. Uh, and so uh, the Quakers, by the 1750s, the Quakers sought to abolish slavery in Pennsylvania. That is where they had this stronghold. Uh, and they were the first. They were the first to, uh, to abolish slavery. Um, and Quakers were actually prominent in the Underground Railroad, and many were persecuted because of their abolitionist activities, and they actually had to flee. Another Christian abolitionist, uh, who doesn't get a very good reputation uh, among uh, Calvinistic Protestants because this guy was more Arminian. He was, a, he was a, uh, one of the leaders of the Second Great Awakening and really the founder of modern revivalism. But starting in the 1830s, Charles Finney uh, uh, was very much against slavery. He thought it was a scandal, something that Christians should abandon completely. And uh, kind of funny, he actually denied communion to slaveholders. Like you could not be, claim to be a Christian in his churches and take communion. Like he said, I reject it. I, reje- I reject your, your, you can't come to the table uh, with that, uh, With like, and still refusing to repent of your slaveholding. He writes, this is a, an example of a, a message he gave. He became the president of Oberlin uh, College. And, and one of his addresses, he says, do you ask what ought Christian men to do about slavery? Doubtless, they ought to use all of their legitimate influence against the fugitive slave bill. That is like you have to return runaway slaves to their masters and against all of the political aggressions of slavery upon our free land and government. Doubtless, they ought to vote uh, for freedom as against slavery and speak out in no mistakable words and tones till the nation shall hear and shall purge itself from all national patronage of this horrible system. So you've got, uh, you do have, you do have Christian voices who are speaking out against this. So I don't mean to say that like Christians were so, uh, so complicit in this. They were. And a lot of the Christians that you and I know and respect and appreciate were very much a part of this and on the wrong side of it. Uh, but there were Christian voices who were speaking out against it. And so I don't mean to uh, imply that there weren't. Fast forward uh, to civil rights. So you've got Civil War, you've got Reconstruction, you've got Jim Crow, uh, and which is, uh, again, largely, and I won't give you a bunch of quotes, but it, uh, again, uh, Christian uh, pastors, Christians in the South, very much a part of this. My own seminary, the seminary I went to, Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, did not admit uh, black people in, 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 into the seminary until the 1970s right? So into the 1970s, like I wasn't born in 1970, but I was almost born in 1970. So almost within my lifetime, uh, my own seminary uh, would not admit African-Americans. No matter what you believed, you could have been completely godly, but you were black. And so you could not come into the seminary. And I often like, you know, when I was, when I was sitting there and knowing this, when I was sitting there in seminary, like I would sit in chapel and you would have all of these uh, professors of the seminary sitting up there and, and some of them really old. I mean, some of them like my Uh, We're teaching at the seminary before my dad was born. Guys like Howard Hendricks, guys like like uh, Dwight Pentecost, uh, Stanley Toussaint, and these guys are all dead now. But like they, these guys are these guys are up there, and they've been they've been around for years and years. And I would find myself wondering, I wonder what side of this thing this this guy was on. Like I I wonder if I wonder if Dwight Pentecost. I wonder if Howard Hendricks. I know wasn't like this, but I I wonder if Dwight Pentecost. I wonder if Stanley Toussaint. These godly men that I that are teaching my class. I wonder if they one time pounded their fist uh, and said, "Not in my seminary, no black people here, right? Like I'm not going to allow you know these integrationists to tell me how to how to how to do this kind of thing. It's not right. God wants the people separate, right? Like I, I wonder. I, and I never, I never got up the courage to be like. So what'd you think about what'd you think about integration back in the '70s? Huh? Like you could tell me. I never had I never had, a, I, never had a, I never had the courage to ask, and now I'll never be able to." Um, but I was fascinated by that. I mean, it's still something that has carried on into Christian institutions for a long, long time. And so uh, I want to end, uh, less than my quotes, with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his, his, his message uh, to the Christians of the South, to the Christian pastors of the South. So Martin Luther King Jr. is, is, is in jail in Birmingham, and he's been uh, jailed for marching for civil rights, and he's talking to these pastors, these pastors, these white pastors in the South who are saying, just wait, like the South is not ready for this. Uh, you, guys in the, you, you, know, you, you guys are uh, pushing for something and you're agitating and you're, and you're, you're raising, a, God wouldn't want this, God wants order. And this will happen eventually, but you gotta wait. And so Martin Luther King Jr. says, uh, there was a time, and he's, he's rebuking them, there was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. I love that metaphor, right? Like not a a thermometer that just reads the temperature, but a thermostat that changes it. Um, Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators, things that Martin Luther King Jr. and his, his people were being called. Uh, But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. But he says things are different now. So often the contemporary church is, is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is on the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Perhaps I have once again been too optimistic. Is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and the world? Perhaps I must turn my faith to the inner spiritual church, the church within a church, as the true ecclesia and the hope of the world. But again, I am thankful to God that some noble souls from the ranks of organized religion have broken loose from the paralyzing chains of conformity and joined us as active partners in the struggle for freedom. They have left their secure congregations and walked the streets of Albany, Georgia, with us. They have, in Albany, Georgia, is, is a famous if you're familiar with civil rights history. Albany, Georgia, was was the one place that Martin Luther King Jr. and his friends got uh, their butt kicked. Like they, they, like uh, when they went to Selma, when they went to these other places, they had a lot of success in Albany. Uh, whatever they had done there was kind of ready for them. And so they really just got beat up and no national attention was brought to it. And they just lost. It was, it was, a, it was one in the L column for the civil rights. He's saying these people were, were with us when it was, it was the worst, uh, when it wasn't successful. They marked the, marched the streets of Albany, Georgia. They have gone down the highways of the South on torturous rides for freedom. Yes, they have gone to jail with us. Some have been dismissed from their churches and they have lost the support of their bishops and fellow members. Um, Ministers. But they have acted in faith that right defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. Their witness has been the spiritual salt that has preserved the true meaning of the gospel in these troubled times. They have carved a tunnel of hope through the dark mountain of disappointment. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. Um, and so we, like Christians, like committed Christians, I don't mean uh, like Christians who call themselves, you know, uh, Christians, but really um, I mean, I mean, Christi- I, I, I do believe folks like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and Christians who have, um, who have, sought to walk with God but were on the wrong side of this thing, uh, have had their their vision, right, colored by the lenses of their culture in ways that led them to do things and and to sanction things and condone things, and to hold views and postures toward uh, uh, people who are recipients of injustice uh, in ways that perpetuated that, reproduced that. And there were other Christians that have come in to say like, no, this is, this is how Jesus would want this. This is what the Bible says about how we treat people in the kind of society that we want. What I want to end with, I maybe want to throw out a couple of questions. Um, what are some potential issues for which our culture is co-opting our Christianity, potentially influencing our perspective can you think of examples? And these are tough because, again, we're wearing lenses, right? Like we're wearing the lenses of our culture, so it it is difficult to step outside uh, our culture and be any kind of objective uh, witness to say, you know what? I, I think our culture has certain messages. Let's let's broaden it out to say, like American culture. What are the things like that American culture may co-opt as like uh, it's really American, but we try to tell ourselves it's Christian too, right? Like or try to baptize it. As if it was can you think of any uh, examples like that? So describe yeah, neoliberalism. I guess it's kind of like hyper capitalism complete okay. reliance kind of a Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically the the idea that um these these words like small government free markets, uh Little regulation, those kinds of things. Like they, they may very like, um, they they may very well be like good economic policy. Uh, but I think we have. Uh, I would agree. I think that uh, committed Christians in particular have kind of bought into that uh, idea that like Jesus would like free markets. Jesus would like capitalism. Jesus would like uh, privatization of like charity and government support. Like no big government, no sa- social safety nets. Churches should take care of that. That kind of that kind of deal, or private agencies take care of that. So I, I, I do think that's probably one that, again, whether or not you think it's good policy, totally fine, but I think the, the issue is, like, to what extent have Christians kind of baptized that and becomes indistinguishable from, like, what Jesus would want versus, like, what a, a particular kind of conservative would like. Any other examples you can think of? Yeah, right. Can you think of examples like? Yeah, right. Well, I'll go, I'll go I'll, you know, I'll take that one step further. Like, think about, you know, jingoism, like, is kind of like being hawkish, like pro-military, pro-fighting. Um, like, we, sticking up for yourself and punching the person who is, who is, who is opposed, like, saying things like, um, you, you know, I, I think within the, I, I'm not, I'm not anti-gun. Like, I, I'm, I'm really not. But there is a culture that, that is kind of a, 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 almost a militarist. Um, pro, like, uh, hey, if anybody comes on my property, I'm going to kill them, I'm going to shoot them, like, I'm going to stand my ground, I have the right to defend myself, and I'm going to do that kind of that kind of thing. And that may very well be, like, within your rights as an American, but is it Christian? Like, is it is it Jesus? Is it Christ-like to say, if somebody assaults me or somebody attacks me, I will respond with deadly force? Or if somebody wants to fight me, I will fight them, rather than submitting, like, rather than being... Uh, Somebody who says, like, you know, like, look, it's God's going to be the one to judge. Like, I uh, want to be Christ-like to this person. So what if they harm me? So what if they take something of mine? That kind of thing. Like, we take something that probably is a more Christian way to think about it, like something that would, Jesus lived out himself, and we kind of take something that is more American and say, like, no, Jesus would want uh, strong military. <laughs> like, Jesus would want us to, uh, you know, uh, make sure that we defend our property uh, because property rights are in the Bible, that kind of that kind of that kind of thing. Yeah, so I think yeah, that kind of idea. Any other any other examples? Not a thing that the church should be associated with. So I know there's a lot of black Christians who are frustrated with historically white combinations for their lack of support. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, as a violent revol right a violent revolution. Yeah, right. No, I think you're. I think I think you're right. I think the the idea of I think the idea of order is is probably a good one. Like that there is, or even this idea that there is some kind of like a mythical past that like a golden age that we should go back to and I wish we could preserve, as if it was so good in the 1950s for everybody. Right, like we kind of baptize that time as like that like it becomes like the greatest Christian time of like when everybody understood uh, their place and like family was family and like, you know, the, the economy was booming and that was the greatest generation. And it's like, well, it wasn't too great for black people like at the time, you know, or anybody else who wasn't like a white male, you know, like that, that kind of thing. And so uh, but we, we do kind of, like, look back at the past and say, like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could go back to that kind of thing, almost making it, like, a Christian thing, like, almost making it a religious thing. So I think you guys are, like, hitting on a lot of the things that I would, I would have hit on. I think, like, uh, things that we, we view as unquestionably good, capitalism, free markets, p- material prosperity, uh, bootstrap stories. Uh, I, and I want to end with this kind of question. So I want us to think about, like, I, I want us to think about really how our culture... How our culture is influencing our posture, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by posture on things like immigration, racial justice, and policing the poor, and religious minorities. I'm not necessarily talking about like your political views in terms of like what you vote for, but I, I want to think about like your posture. So, so take for example, um, whether or not you feel like uh, a wall should be built. Uh, on the, uh, the southern part of Texas, like on the border between Texas and Mexico, like there are legitimate reasons why you, why you would think that, that that border wall should be there, uh, and there may be legi- there are legitimate reasons why you think it shouldn 't be um, but i 'm more interested in your posture towards immigrants right like in, in, in how your culture may be coloring how you view those people like it like um, do, you, do you want a border wall because you feel like hey this just good policy, or do you want a border wall because you 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 fear? Uh, brown people as like a, a, a threat and you are kind of buying into a hysteria around uh, thinking that the majority of them are terrorists or there's terrorists infiltrating them or they want to do us harm. I literally talked to a guy this, this past week. I'm doing research for my, for my book project and I literally talked to a guy this past week who said uh, that he thinks most of the immigrants who want to come into the country want, mean to do us harm. Um, and actually I actually had to ask him to say it twice because I wasn't sure that I, ca- I heard him right. Like, so you're saying you, you think most of the immigrants trying to get in the country want to do us harm, like they want to like literally like uh, commit murder or like crime or that kind of thing? He said, yeah, absolutely, right? And, uh, and I, I think that's, that's probably an example of like the culture. And this guy's a Christian. So like uh, the culture influencing not necessarily policy. Again, like there could be non-prejudicial, non-bigoted reasons for like having a wall built. And yet this reason was a bigoted one. Like this reason was a prejudicial, uh, culturally influenced, and I would say contaminated view of the foreigner in ways that I feel like are, are not necessarily like biblical ways. There may be American ways. They're like they may be kind of coming from somewhere, but it ain't coming from Jesus. Does that make sense? Right? And so I'm more so interested in your posture, not like your, your uh, what posture do you take toward vulnerable people, toward immigrants, toward uh, uh, African Americans when they when on TV when they are clearly like shot for no reason other than being uh, black or poor people like do you see poor people as Jesus saw poor people or is your posture towards poor people of like well I gotta protect myself I don't want to enable them and I don't want to you know give them handouts and I gotta make sure that they're not being irresponsible and I've gotta uh, make sure that I I kind of regulate everything you know teach them like values that they need to have and that kind of thing. Is You know, that may be good policy. It may be, right? So I'm not, I'm not questioning that. But is it Jesus, right? Like So that's what I, I want us to ask is, is um, my views on these kinds of issues. And I'm just picking these issues because I think these are hot button issues. But is Jesus shaping my posture towards those people and, and influencing how I think about those groups? Or is that coming from another narrative? Is that coming from another message that is a part of our culture but not necessarily the Jesus part. Does that make sense? You guys feel me there? Okay. Any questions or comments, thoughts about stuff we talked about? Yeah, Kenneth. Um, just two observations. Yeah. Like we Yeah. Toward, towards, like, segregation. Oh, toward segregation. Oh, towards segregation. You Do you mean, um, you, I mean, are you talking about, like, the re-engagement of evangelicals, like, in the public, in the political I, sphere, like, or the... Yeah, like, before, like, I mean, before Roe, he went during the cultural wars, there was definitely this. Oh, yeah, right, right, and yeah. So Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Or don't. Yeah. Don't feel like they are. Yeah. Kind of recognized, or they're, Or there. There's no empathy for kind of what they're experiencing uh, as African Americans in the U.S., which is, I, I think, true. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Kevin. Do you have any, I guess, suggestions for dealing with this apparently real possibility that we could be, like in Edwards, living our whole lives? Right, of humans, right. Something oh man, I think about that all the time. Like, Yeah, like what, what, what is it about the things that I believe and do uh, that my, my grandkids are going to be embarrassed about? Like that's the one I think about. Like what are the things, the views that I hold that my grandkids are going to be ashamed of like oh grandpa you know grandpa Sam, uh, you know like you know, uh, and so I don't I don't know I, like I, other other than trying to be like self-reflective like I think my, I had a sociology professor in undergrad like um, uh, he used to always say S- sometimes even even the fact that you're asking the question uh, is like it le- it means you're aware it means that like you're aware that I could have a blind spot here and so what is that blind spot you know I I, I would like to think. Um, Kind of like, uh, I think the fact that, and so in some ways we can't help this in Norman because Norman itself is 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 not a very diverse place. Like it's not a very ethnically diverse place. It's not a racially diverse place. It's not even in some ways it's not even really an ideologically diverse place as much as other places. Um, I think sometimes the things that help would be exposing myself to different viewpoints so that I can interact with people like my my African American brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. Or people who are Latino and and have experienced immigration and those kinds of things, or people who are uh, uh, in poverty, right? Like I don't have those relationships, or a lot of them, and those people like bring light to my eyes because I'm able to see, like, you know what? I, I wouldn't have even thought about that. Like I wouldn't even like I wouldn't know. I wouldn't even know that like police injustice uh, was a thing. Like I might have been skeptical. Uh, of like really or like police really doing this? Like, are you guys just kind of making this up? Are you asking for it? If I hadn't had brothers in Christ who are who are black that I respect and I know wouldn't lie to me, that say, dude, I, I get I get stopped every week. Like, it, it is not something that I'm making up. It's not something that I'm uh, just kind of conjuring. And I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just walking through a pre- primarily a predominantly white neighborhood, and police just stop me and ask to see ID or ask me what I'm doing or they hassle me. And so like. Uh, I need those conversations, so I think it's that kind of thing, like being exposed to brothers and sisters in Christ from a different perspective so I can say, like, oh, my gosh, it's a total blind spot, right? Like, so that, that's the one that comes to mind, but I think about that all the time. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, right. Not in the Reformed church, but in the main line, churches especially, there's a tendency towards uh to embrace the cultures, embrace tolerance. Yes, right. So there are no lines in John. Yep. Right. And, yeah, and that's, a, and that's a great point. I think I these, these you're right, these are selective based on kind of the things that I'm looking at. But... uh But but I I completely hear you, like there are, uh, we can go the opposite way of a lot of this and we could embrace the cultures uh, crossing the lines in ways that we feel like this, no, this just, we can't do that, like as Christians, uh, morally, and we need to kind of wake up and say like, hey, is this, is this something that I'm okay with? Because whether it's, I mean, you could say it's issues surrounding sexuality or it's, or it's the things, the media that we consume and that we're cool with now, like that just we've become okay with, Right. Um, that's unhealthy and not good. I think I think about that—that that is social media all the time. Like that, it's not—is it, it's something that we uncritically have kind of embraced, and I, you know, I, I worry about the detriment uh, of of our involvement and that kind of that kind of thing. But I mean, uh, like a whole gamut. So you're right, morality for sure. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, sure. Um, Okay. So uh, I I think it, I think it, my, my personal thought is it depends on the context in which you are. So like, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't knock a, uh, a, a, a church in Bozeman, Montana for not having enough people of color in it because there are no people of color, right? Like, so, so like, uh, but um, if you are, First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia. That's downtown and surround like, and it's a it's a it's a church full of uh, uh, white doctors and lawyers and professors, and it's surrounded by the black community, and no black people go to that church. Uh, then I kind of I, you know I I think like to what extent are you just kind of excluding people because you're unwilling to compromise in some rituals, or you're able to set the table a little bit in ways that like people of color might find this more attractive kind of deal. So I think to the extent that we are able, I do think we ought to be crossing racial lines and seeking to unify the body. Now, um, historically, that, that has been a challenge for a couple of different reasons. One, because like churches of color, like a Korean church or a black church, that's been a refuge for those people, right? Like it, it hasn't been something that like, they, it's something that they have some, selected into lots of times. Like they didn't feel like self segregate they didn't feel segregated into it. It's something that they say this, these are my people. These are the, the, these are the only times I can be around and like white people aren't telling me what to do. And so I'm going to go to this church and I'm going to celebrate it my way. Um, so it's like, um, and, we, and, and if we are going to do that, so here's, and here's another problem, like oftentimes and research shows this, and so I'm not just kind of pulling this out, but research shows that oftentimes when white people say, hey, we need to make this church more diverse. We want to have people of color here. It means I don't want to change anything about the way I do my church, but I want people of color to be cool with everything that I like. You know, so, like, I don't want to, like, sing their songs. I don't want to have one of them preaching. And I don't want to, like, I don't, I don't want to eat their food. Like, I, like, or maybe they eat the food. But, like, it's, it's like I don't, want to, I, don't want to, I don't want to compromise culturally in any way that's uncomfortable for me, but I want them to make all the compromises. So I do think, like, uh, white churches uh, should be willing to, uh, compromise culturally in a way, and I don't mean like compromise biblically, but I mean compromise culturally in a way that opens the doors up to communities that would otherwise not feel welcome there. Does that make sense? So I do think that should be a priority. I don't think it should be the ultimate priority as in like above preaching the gospel, above discipleship, but I think that's a part of discipleship. It's a part of preaching the gospel. Yeah. That's a great question though. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean I I think since fundamentalism, like I think since uh like, I mean, that's, that's kind of the reputation of, like, the early 1900s. Like, we have been kind of the anti-social justice group. Like, you, do have, you, have, you have folks like Finney. You have folks like the Quakers. You have, you have like, I, I would consider evangelical Christians. Even though some of them may be kind of fringy, you did have evangelical Christians who are, who are abolitionists, who are, who are fighting for uh, the rights of, rights of people. And they were fighting in other ways, like issues of morality, issues of temperance, issues of, like, uh, against things like pornography and those kinds of things. Um, but during the, the, the rise of fundamentalism in the early 1900s, you have this kind of pulling away and saying, we're just going to be about, like, sharing the gospel and protecting ourselves from the corruption of the world. Uh, and it wasn't until recent years where we actually kind of jumped back in the game. Um, you know, yeah, and that's, and that's it. Like, it's just kind of this story of, like, us pendulum swinging backwards and forth. Yeah. Okay. Hey, um, again, thanks so much for coming, everybody. And, and uh, I've really enjoyed the time. And uh, hopefully, when we, we do equip next semester, I mean, I think, uh, you know, whether I'm leading it or so, whether somebody else is, I, I mean, I think uh, hopefully we can get a, a good group together because this has been edifying for me. Um, okay, let me pray for us. God, thanks so much for this, uh, uh, your people. Thank you that uh, there is grace. Lord, thank you that, that uh, your grace covers our sins, even the sins that we don't know about because we're so blinded by our culture. Uh, and the things that we are uh, breathing in in that culture, uh, God, I, you know, it, it hurts my heart that Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield were so blinded by uh, by this that they could they could think owning other human beings or, or uh, the violence done to other human beings uh, was somehow justified and okay with Jesus, and and that just it, it baffles me, it shocks me. Um, and, and, and yet, uh, it makes me thankful that you are so gracious. It makes me thankful that you use people uh, despite their mistakes. Uh, so God, I pray that you would open our eyes through conversations with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ uh, by at least asking the question, like, am I blinded to something? Am I missing something? Because my culture is so, uh, so um, this value or this belief is so pervasive in my culture that I'm uncritically uh, digesting it and internalizing it. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to those areas uh, that are sin, and you would help us to, as a group, uh, call that out, repent of it, and uh, and that your bride would be uh, pure and spotless, or at least pure and spotless as possible as we we, we move toward the end of all things. Uh, God, we're thankful for your word. We're thank you for your thankful for your Holy Spirit and for each other, um, and I pray that we continue to edify each other as we get into the the Christmas or the Thanksgiving and Christmas season. In Jesus' name, Amen.